All right, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Now, we've been working on Romans for a while. To be honest, I haven't really been happy with anything that we've accomplished so far. However, at the same time, I'm kind of happy with what we've accomplished so far, but it all comes down to what we're trying to accomplish. And I, what I mean by that is this. Um, it's easy to put together three points, a little nice put-together sermon with a bow wrapped around it, and, um, all, and all I have to do is try to work on on how I present it, try to be engaging, some good illustrations, tell a funny story here or there, um, you know, make everyone feel like, well, that was a great, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it was. It was, it was interesting. And then everyone moves on and then probably, you know, three weeks later, they don't remember anything. Now, my approach still may not accomplish in you remembering anything in three weeks, but hopefully what accomplishes before we're done is that we've all worked together hard struggling through the text and all the problems the text presents. Now we spent a lot of time in Romans 1, 18 and following and sadly a lot of that had to focus on the issue of homosexuality because it's so controversial right now in the church um, and there's a, there's a movement going on right now in the church that is just... Uh, right now I think here's the problem that's happening in the church is either you have to be basically homosexuality is not a sin or you have to go to another extreme basically you know um, that I don't believe is unbiblical and and any nuanced approach that tries to be biblical and in the middle is getting shot by both sides and that's kind of a dangerous place that the church is in and I don't know where it's going to play out but it's I could give you article after article right now of just craziness that's that's being discussed and I don't know I don't know where it's going to end out end up but it's going to require those Christians who care about the Bible to, to not be manipulated into going to one extreme versus the other. It's, we have to stand ground that the text determines what we believe, even if it doesn't go with whatever the majority around us is saying. And that's always been the case in Christianity, and it's just a case on this subject. There's countless other subjects right now that are also the same thing is happening. So we're going to come to Romans chapter 2. And um, I know that we, we skipped some things to get to Romans 1.18, but here's the, right now, we, if we stop and go back to that, we're going to destroy the flow of Paul's argument. So we have to press on, and hopefully that will be beneficial. The way I want to set this up this morning is I want us to go to 2 Samuel. All right? 2 Samuel, because I know when all of you read Romans chapter 2, your first thought was 2 Samuel. Probably not, okay, but you'll see why. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 12, let's start in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. All right, and he came unto him, this is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan and, uh, unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Now stop right here. Okay. If you don't know the context of the story, David has committed, let's just say, a whole lot of sins. Everyone agree? A lot of sins. And God is sending Nathan to confront him. Now, Nathan, when he confronts him, he's using kind of a rhetorical device in order to confront him. He doesn't just show up and say, hey, David, you've sinned. He's using a device in order to give it more impact. All right? Watch the device that he utilizes here, okay? He comes and he tells him a story. 
There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his own bosom and and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man and spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man and was come to him. Right? So whose lamb gets taken? The poor man. The poor man's lamb gets taken. Right? Horrible story. Would we agree? Right? I mean, this, this is something precious to this poor man. He doesn't have anything else and it's taken from him. That's, that's bad. And it's taken for him on whose behalf? For, for whose benefit? The rich man. And you're like, wait, this is not right. In fact, everyone would say, it's not just. And anyone who hears the story would immediately do what? Make a judgment. Right? I want to make sure everyone, writes, everyone gets that down. Every, he tells the story to do what? To produce a judgment in the one listening. Right? What does it mean to judge? What does it mean to judge? Anybody know a definition of what it means to judge? Well, I'll give you a, a dictionary definition. Judge, form an opinion or conclusion about. Form a conclusion or an opinion about. Everyone in this room makes judgments all day, every day. You're make, you'll make a, every time I say a word, you make a judgment. Right? You make a judgment whether you agree, whether you disagree, whether you like it, whether you dislike it, whether, whether you think I went to an extreme or didn't go to an extreme. Everyone makes judgments. When you, when you get in the car and, and the car in front of you, you make judgments about their driving, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's irritating, right? You walk into, you walk into a grocery store and you see someone doing something, you make judgments. You're making judgments about how they dress, how they look, how they handle their kids, how they don't handle their kids. You are literally a living, breathing, judgment machine you judge constantly no matter how pious you try to act like you judge people constantly he tells a story to incite a judgment and David takes the bait does he not what does the text say and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. David's really ticked off. He's like, if this story is true, find me the man. I'm king. I'll have him killed. Whoo, David. He's mad. That's some righteous indignation. He wants the man destroyed. And then we know the famous words that's going to follow. Right? He continues that not only does he want him to die, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou 
art the man. Thou art the man. All right? Now, a couple of things about this. A lot of times people will say, well, David committed this sin, and see, there were consequences, and there, because there's consequences, then if someone else commits a sin, then they should get some consequences. Let's make sure who lays out the consequences. David himself, right? I mean, David's, right? I mean, it's kind of partially, that's part of, part of the, the reason it happens the way it happens. But, but uh, a lot of times people try to take this story and then try to dis- think that they can come out and write down the, the consequences everyone should face for their sin. But you're right. God is the one who comes up with the consequences here. Um, and David is partially responsible. You can't necessarily take this and say this is the way it should work for every person's sin and that every person, you know, like, you know the, but people do that. But the point is here, David made a judgment, did he not? And the reason he made a judgment, I want you to listen to this, he, he, a rhetorical trap was set. A rhetorical trap was set. Hey, David, listen to this. Yeah. And David's like, yeah. And then he jumps right into the trap. A rhetorical trap is set. I believe in some ways, Romans 2 is a rhetorical trap. Okay? I believe in some ways it's a rhetorical trap. And, I, and hopefully you will see that. All right, so let's go to Romans chapter 2, and we'll see how this plays out. All right, everybody got their thinking caps on? You may think this is an easy passage, but there's plenty of problems here to try to figure out. Okay, here we go. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. The reason I'm going to read 1 through 16 is because I believe 1 through 16 kind of forms its own section. Um, a lot of sometimes in the past I would give you an outline for the whole chapter. I'm trying to build the outlines as we're working through chapters, right? So um, most of your Bibles will divide one through sixteen, verses seventeen and following, as different sections with different headings. I think most of your how many of your Bibles have a, a, a heading for uh, verse uh, one and a heading for verse uh, seventeen? No, no headings. Okay, mine breaks it down. Yours does. Okay, they stop it at 12. Okay, so there'll be some disagreement on where to end it, but we'll go all the way to 16, and then set yours is 17. Okay, so, so again, nobody can ever agree on how to break down sections, but that's okay. Um, we'll look at it. Here we go. Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest dost the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despise thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness... An impenitent heart, treasure up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. That's a controversial verse, but we'll continue. To them who by patient uh, uh, continuance in in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. 
but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respecter of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish, perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Another controversial verse. Uh, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, uh, and their thoughts, the man while accusing of else excusing one another. In that in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. All right. There's a lot going on in 16 verses. All right, a lot. And we, and you're, you're just, you just have to be prepared. We're going to be here for 900 years, okay? There are so many issues here to deal with. But if you look at those 16 verses, I don't know how many times you read it prior to then, but if you look at those 16 verses, something should jump out at you. Something should scream from the pages. What would you say is the... Uh, One major topic in these 16 verses. Judgment. Would everyone agree? The word judge, judgment, judged. I don't know how many times it's used. It's used a lot, right? I mean, I could have a sit here and count it, but you get the idea. Would everyone agree that that's probably, that it's very fair to say this is a major theme here? Yes? Okay. I think, possibly, a contrast can be found here in some ways, at least at the beginning. There's kind of a contrast between the judgments of men and the judgment of God. I think that is very fair. So we're going to look at this. Now, some commentaries break this down saying that these verses gives us principles on how God judges. Now, we've got to be careful here because if you're not careful, this section, just make sure you're aware, this section is used by many, especially within the Roman Catholic Church, to argue that judgment is according to works and not, it's not a, a, it's a works-based system. And, and you have to be somewhat fair. This text definitely kind of screams that concept out, and we'll have to deal with that as we get there, all right? But here we go. We're going to try to work on this and see where we go. But you get the idea. Judge. Right? And I believe it's set up like Nathan set up David. It's set to set the reader up, and it may be setting up a specific group of people in chapter 2. We will see. What's the first word we have to deal with? Therefore. Therefore. Now, the therefore leads us back to where? Chapter 1. All right. And I believe it sets us back to chapter 1, verses 18 and following. I think that that's very I I don't think you can divorce it in any way, shape, or form. Therefore, now what did Paul do in verses 18 to 32? Okay, God's wrath is upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Everybody remember that? In fact, it goes all the way down and ends in verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Does that not sound like David? Yes? Right? And not only do the same, but have pleasure uh, in them that do them. All right. Verse 32, we, get to, we end it with the judgment of God, correct? 
verses 18 to 31 described a downward progression that occurred, right? God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Why did God pour out his wrath against everything? Well, because people had been given a revelation. And how did they respond to that revelation? We can get back and talk about the revelation. They rejected that revelation. And it started a downward spiral where man went from bad to worse to worse. To worse, it was a downward evolution, right? It was a de-evolution, you could say, of man. Now, we made an argument, and I will stand by it, that Romans 1, 18 and 32 was speaking of mankind in general. I think that that's very fair to say. Not a specific group, not just homosexuals, but everyone. And saying that mankind, because of this downward progression into depravity, will anything, uh, things all the way down to... Um, homosexuality can occur within mankind. I think that's very fair. Everyone agree? All right. Now, that means he he is basically what he's trying to do. He set everyone up that by the time you get to verse 32, he wants a certain kind of a reaction specifically from certain kinds of people. There will be certain kinds of people who will read 1, 18 to 32 to say, Amen! Condemn that nonsense. He's waiting for that person to go, yeah, that's right. That's filthy, vile behavior. Men with men, women with women. This is idolatry. Condemn them. It's almost setting up a rhetorical device. He he can almost hear someone going, yes. Condemn that. And, and if you preach Ro, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32 in some churches and really focus on the homosexuality part, you're going to get a lot of what from the, uh, from the pews. Amen, 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 amen. Condemn that to the 18th level of hell and you'll be, you may even get an applause in some church. Because what are you condemning? Probably condemning a sin that's not prevalent and amongst a lot of the people sitting in the pew. Because here's the thing. You get a lot of amen when you're condemning everyone else's sins. You don't get quite the amen when you're condemning the sins of the people sitting in front of you. If I go hard, I mean, I've always said this before. Um, it happens all the time. If, I, if I, I can use my same type of speech, which some, you know, some may say is very hyperbolic at times, which it can be, and very exaggerated, everyone's okay with that if I'm going after something they don't like, right? Like if I go after Catholicism, bunch of idolaters, bunch of pagan worshipers, worshiping Mary, eating a wafer, thinking it's God. What kind of foolishness is that? Everybody be like, amen. <laughs> oh, but if all of a sudden I turn that same language to something that you like, something, oh, then you don't, you're, not, you're not as welcoming of that same language, Correct. If all of a sudden I go after your favorite pastor, or your, then all of a sudden, ooh, now you get mad. That, that's that's the, the, the trap here. He wants everyone here to go, amen, 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 condemn them. And then he turns around and says, therefore, thou are inexcusable. Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul, what did you just do? What, wait, what are you doing? He just set everyone up. He just set everyone up. I think that what we're seeing here is Paul's employing, is, is using the same idea 
that Nathan used. It's a rhetorical device. He set you up. Now, so therefore takes us back. Now, thou art inexcusable. Obviously, whoever he's referring to here, they're without excuse. Okay, so we have to determine who is the, the old man. Who is the identity of the man here? Who is the identity of the man? Do you know how many options we have? They may know. We have three. Now, probably if I went through more commentaries, we could probably end up with a hundred. Okay, but, but that's, that's, that's the, because the Bible is so clear, right? We have three. What are our options? What's option number one? Do I? Do who? Okay, who's writing to? Okay. Well, the, the first option is everyone. Just everyone in general. Okay. Second. There we go. He's speaking to the Jews. Some would argue the, the reason we know he's speaking to the Jews is what he does in verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew. All right. And so what he was doing, he was setting up the Jewish Writers. He was, he was just setting up the Jewish readers, I should say, not writers. And this is how he was doing so. They would argue that what he did in Romans 1, 18 to 32 was say, here's that Gentile pagan world. And that Gentile pagan world is one messed up world, isn't it, fellow Jews? And all the Jews said at the end of verse 32... Amen. Those Gentile dogs, they deserve death. They deserve judgment. They are pathetic. And then he's like, uh, you're inexcusable. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, Paul, what did you just do? And I think he's going to kind of set this up. I think this is somewhat tr- true. And the reason I believe it's somewhat true is once we get to 17 and move forward, he starts talking about the Jews and how they're guilty. So I think there's some truth to that, but there's a third option. What is the third option? So we got everyone. We got the Jew. What's a third option? I mean, no? The third option, let me see if I can find it here. I think this commentary gives us this option. Find it, go all the way back. Let me see if I can find it here. If not, I can explain it to you. But I wanted to read it per, for when, whenever I get something from something else, I like to read it for you. I didn't have it marked. Give me one second. Um, okay, here we go. Well... Okay, well, I'll, I'll, there's a lot of parts here, and I don't want to read all of this. But in this commentary, I'll just make sure you know the source. It's the MacArthur uh, commentary on uh, Romans. He basically states this, that the man, that the old man here that he's referring to, is referring to all those who would be considered moral or self-righteous. Right? Which would include the Jews. So all those who are moral or self-righteous, this would be referring to. Because anyone who is so-called moral or self-righteous, if they look at everything that we just read in Romans 1, 18 to 32, what would they do? They would say, Amen. Agreed? 
right? Okay. Now, everyone in this room, right? You all, I want to make, I want to set this up very important. This is very important. So I need, I need you to pay close attention here. Okay. Everyone in this room, you, you were brought up with certain moral standards, whether those moral standards were derived from Christianity or not derived from Christianity. You were all raised with certain moral standards. Okay. Now if we could sit here and talk about what you were taught was right and you were taught was wrong. I'll give you an example. Um, I, <clears throat> My, my parents, obviously, we didn't go to church most of the time. There was a few times we did, but most of the time we didn't go to church. Clearly not a Christian family. I, I don't know where I was. Maybe I was out playing basketball. I don't know. And I heard someone use the N-word. And I didn't know what it was, right? So I came home and I asked my mom, hey, what is this word? Before I got the word out my mouth, I got knocked across the room with a backhand, okay, bloodied my lip, fell down. She says, you will never under any circumstance use that word. If you do, basically, I will kill you, right? And I was like, okay. The next day, I was handed a very large book called Roots, right? And I was told I had to read the whole book, right? That book speaks of, obviously, slavery and slaves coming to America, and I learned about the slave trade, and I was like, I was young, I was young, and um, I was like, whoa, Okay, note to self, don't say that word in my house, okay? Two, I begin to understand, wait, we did what as a country? Wait, we bought human, wait, we did what? And then she taught me about the civil rights movement. So in my family, racism was absolutely not allowed. It was not tolerated. It was evil. And any racist person, my mom would say, is nothing more than white trash that deserves to die. Right? And she would not tolerate it in any way, shape, or form. So that had a major, that, that, that stuck with me my whole life. I hate racism more than, I mean, you don't even understand. I mean, when I started this church, when, when I came here, one of the very first things I said, if anyone in this church is opposed to mixed marriage, it's time to go because I'm not going to tolerate it under any, any situation because that's crazy, right? So, um, you know, that, that's, that was a moral standard I had. Now, you had moral standards as well. I don't know what those moral standards were. There are a lot of other things we didn't have any moral standards for. I mean, I mean, I was watching, I, mean, I can tell you movies I was seeing that when I was so young. I can remember standing outside of the Westgate Cinema in Abilene, Texas after seeing Scarface and I was little and I was standing there still shaking after seeing that movie. I was so mentally disturbed that I still need counseling from that. That movie was disturbed. I didn't even understand what was going on, okay? So she didn't care about that, okay? Because her idea, well, you've got to figure out how to process it and if you can't figure out how to process it, you're too dumb and I don't have time to talk to you, okay? So, um, so that, that's a different. My mom was like, here, read every book. I don't care what's in the book. I don't care how bad the book is. Read it. You've got to figure it out. Okay. So, my, so that was a different way. But you were raised a certain way. And guess what you do with every morality that doesn't conform to the morality in which you were raised? You judge it. And you judge it as being wrong. You condemn it. That's why the moral person does that. Everyone has a certain, and everyone has a level of morality. Everyone does, and everyone wants everyone else's morality to conform to their morality, and they believe that they are the ultimate judge of morality. Everyone does it, even Christians. Everyone has, because you have Christians who can't agree on morality, right? 
Right? You have, there can be major arguments over Christ. Well, I can't believe that that Christian would listen to that record. Okay, that's a morality about music. Right? And everyone will run to their scripture to find it. And sometimes because we're imposing what? Our morality upon this. Right? That's, everyone's guilty of this. But we, so we're all moral people. Right? Everyone, morality is, is, why is morality a part of all human nature? Right? God is a moral being. We're created in his image and his law was written Where? Our heart. So there's this intrinsic idea of morality. But you have, listen, you have a morality that either comes from outside of yourself or you have a morality that comes from within. Morality that derives from within, we sometimes may refer to that as self-righteousness or a self-morality. Amen? Amen? Okay? Now, some people, when they, they are drawn to Christianity because Christianity has morality and they, they just add that to their already self-righteous attitude and then they're unbearable and then they're out of control. Okay? So, here's what I want you to, uh, to understand. Self-righteous people typically make two errors. These are two errors made by self-righteous people. Number one, and when I say they, we, we're all kind of in this together, all right? We, we underestimate the depth of God's standard. We underestimate the depth of God's standards. We underestimate the depth of God's standards. What do I mean by that? All right. Typically, when we judge morality, we judge morality based off what? External action. External action. However, God judges morality. God's standard goes far deeper than what? The external. God is also concerned with the internal. And this was a major controversy when Jesus showed up and started talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, especially on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because what did Jesus tell people? Oh, that law against adultery? That goes not just for what you do, what you desire, what you lust for. That means you can be an adulterer according to the biblical standard, right? And never have ever touched anyone in any way, shape, or form. Which then puts most people in the adulterer context. We may not want to pretend that it doesn't. It doesn't. And some say, well, I've never looked at lust with anyone. You may not have looked at lust, but you may have looked at someone and still desired that, oh, they would be a better husband, or they would, they would treat me better, or I wish I had that. That's still getting there. It may not be in a sexual way, but it's in an emotional way, right? There's lots of things like that. Murder. Now, we judge murder by someone taking a life. God can, can condemn you for being a murderer for what? For the way you think. 
right? We can, submission. If we take this principle, a wife can outwardly look submissive to her husband, but inwardly, inside, she's not happy and she's not submitting inside. I'm, stand, I'm, you know, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I think you're an idiot. And I don't, I, I, that's, that's, you're unsubmissive from a biblical perspective. Does that make sense? That, that changes the standard dramatically. What does that do to God's standard? Well, that destroys your self-righteousness because if you look at it that way, you start realizing you're not as righteous as you first perceived yourself to be. So those in Romans 2 that he has set up, they looked at all those people in Romans 1, 18 and following, and they were like, amen, these people are all condemned, and they probably focused on what? The external actions, and he comes along and says, hey guys, hey, 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 oh man, you're inexcusable. You're without excuse. You're without excuse. And what does Romans 2, 1 say about this man? Have they not made a judgment? Look at Romans 2, 1. Everybody see it? I'm in Psalms, so that's not going to help me any. Okay, I got too many Bibles up here. Romans chapter 2. Wherefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. They made a judgment. And they had to judge all of that behavior going, come on, that behavior is wrong. And what, what we, they, when self-righteous people tend to forget that, wait a minute, God's standards go beyond the external. They go to the internal. So you need to slow down and back up before you start judging and condemning everyone. And Christians forget that all day. We see external behavior and we immediately pronounce our judgment on how bad that behavior is. And sometimes we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's standard goes beyond that. Now, that, now we have to always think it through logically. I mean, obviously, we don't, from a theological standpoint, we're all guilty before God. But I think we can acknowledge we treat a physical murderer different than a mental murderer. Agreed? Right? And I hope... I hope we draw some distinction between physical adultery and mental adultery. I hope there is some distinction there. Maybe. Sometimes Christians don't want to make that distinction, but we want to make that distinction between, I mean, because, I mean, how many of you want me to go call the cops and go, I think my whole church has murdered me? Three times. They're like, what? what, what? You're, how are you calling us? They murdered me. They, they, they killed you? I, I'm dead. Okay. No, you're not. I am. Because in Christianity, we believe mental murder is the same as physical murder. I want them arrested. Nobody does that, correct? But sometimes we do it with other sins, right? It's like, how do we, like, sometimes we're not very smart in how we do this um, because sometimes we are more worried about our self-righteous uh, mindset. Does that make sense? So that's number one. That's error number one. We underestimate the depth of God's standard. Number two. We underestimate the depth of our own sin. We underestimate the depth of our own sin. Very important quote. It is a universal temptation to exaggerate the fault of others while minimizing our own. 
It is a universal temptation to, ex- to exaggerate the fault of others while minimize, minimizing our own. Everyone in this room has done that. What, what, what is it easy to see? Everybody else's sin. What is it very hard to acknowledge? Our own. We have a tendency to, when it comes to our sin doing this. I sinned, and what's the next word? But. I sin, but. Now, I understand that every time we sin, that there can be thousands of circumstances that surround it, right? There can be, thou- there can be like, well, you, you know, this occurred, this occurred. But when it comes down to it, when, you know, I, I've said it, I hope I've not only said it, hopefully I've tried to show it, that when you are involved in a sin, you just start without blaming anyone else. You just say, I sin, my fault, I'm responsible, no one else's fault. That's where you start because that's the way, that's the biblical mindset. You say, well, but, but there are other circumstances. There could be, but start with acknowledging your own fault and your own sin. We underestimate the depth of our own sin. We don't see it. We, we're blind to it. We can see the splinter and an eye that's 30,000 miles away and completely miss the giant tree that's hanging out of our own right in front of us. We're like, I can see that splinter 30,000 miles away and so and so because I read a news article about them and I bet this. Slow down. You may want to look in the mirror. So what are two errors that all self-righteous moral people have a tendency of committing? We underestimate the depth of God's standard. We reduce God's standard to external action and not an internal thing. And number two, we underestimate the depth of our own sin. That is the reality of self-righteous people. That is the reality here. And that's what he's, that's what's happening here. Paul is setting up an argument. Hey, all of you willing to judge those people in chapter 1, 18 to 32, you're without excuse. And why are they without excuse? Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest dost the same things. Now, I don't believe he's saying that they necessarily physically committed the same acts, right? Because then he would have just put this group with the other group. This is a group that perceives themselves as being more righteous. This is a group perceiving themselves to be better. And in the historical context, which group would have definitely perceived themselves to be better? The Jews, especially compared to those no good Gentiles. And that's going to be a major argument. So therefore, what is he trying to argue? Jew or Gentile, we're all what? Sinners. We're all sinners. He's trying to make an argument against universality. Uh, He's making an argument for the universality of sin. We're all sinners. Therefore, we all need the gospel. And God's wrath, what is he making an argument? God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness, including what? The outward and the inward reality of that depravity. So immediately, what is he calling into question? Man's judgment. Man's judgment is flawed. 
our ability to judge is broken. All right? Now, bear with me. I'll go through this quickly. And then we'll try to end, okay? I know we're almost out of time. So just stay with me because I think this is very important, all right? Two passages of scripture that just screams that we have to read at this point. They both come from the Gospel of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 15. You know these stories, but now I want you to understand these stories in light of what we just looked at in Romans 2. Romans chapter 15, verse 11. Everyone here knows, or Luke, what did I say? I said Romans. Okay, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. All right, everybody there? All right, and Jesus is speaking, and he said, a certain man had two sons. I think in Romans 1, 18 and 32, and then starting in chapter 2, we have two different groups. All right? And the younger of them said to his father, give me the portion of goods that faileth to me, that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. I'll stop right here. Basically, the young son comes and what does he want? His inheritance. And typically, what do you have to get before you get your inheritance? You have to have the death of someone, right? So it's kind of pretty messed up to go and say, hey, give me my inheritance now. Right? I want my inheritance right now. I'm not even waiting for you to die. I want it now. Kind of messed up, is it not? And what does he do? And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Right? External behavior, correct? And we all would sit back and do what when we heard this story? Right? If you're sitting in church and someone tells them that their kid did this, you'd be like, hmm, their kid's so messed up. And then we would probably then judge who? The parent. Then we say, well, well I don't know why the parent gave them their inheritance now. That was dumb. And, oh, well, if, they're, if they, they wouldn't have let their kids play video games, probably never would have happened, okay? And if they didn't listen to that loud rock and roll, that probably never would have happened. And then we have 900 reasons why the parent's at fault. We're going to judge everyone in the story, are we not? That's what we do. That's, that's, sadly, that's what we do. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and, and uh, no man gave unto him. Now stop right there. This is a very controversial story, obviously, for the Jews. Right? Because this kid ends up where? And the pigs die. This, 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 the Jews would have been like, oh, wow. Unclean everything. Unclean, 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 unclean. This would be bad. Like, there's no way to tell this story. Like, if we told the story in modern times, that doesn't, nobody here gets offended by that. But if you told the story, like, there was a guy who had two sons and this one son, he ended up taking all of his inheritance. And then he ended up, and he ended up, he ended up not only in homosexuality, he, he's, a, he's transgender now. He's go, and people are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe your son did that. And everybody would judge it all day long, right? And, and you don't believe me, go find a bunch of Christians, tell them that you, you have a son and, or a daughter and now they're transgender and see what the reaction will be, right? You know, like they're they're going to look down, like they're going to somehow think you were, they're going to they're look at the whole situation, 
And that's what they, that's what, again, this isn't, he's using a, a, a device here to get, the, what does he want these Jews to do? Be horrified. He wants them to, to judge. This is, this, this is be used just like Paul, Paul's using it in Romans 2. All right? And then what happens? And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare and I, and, and I perish with the hunger, with the hunger, with hunger, I should say. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now again, when it comes to Christianity, this is the thing I have so many problems with. People, Christianity seems to think that this only applies to the lost person. But if someone who is a Christian who then falls into sin, if, he come, if they come back, they're going to be like, we need to talk. And there needs to be 37 requirements that you need to... We don't, we don't just run and throw our arms around them. It's always like, you're forgiven. And then what's the next word? But... There are some consequences. Does the father say there needs to be some consequences? No, he runs, right? Has compassion, fell on him, his neck, kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, the, and, and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring forth the fatted, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be Mary, what does he not want? He doesn't need, I don't need to know everything you did. I don't need to know all the details. I don't need to know every, I just need you to know that if you've repented, you've, he, I, you've sinned, you're my son. I forgive you. You're welcome back. I'm going to treat you. I'm going to treat you. In some ways, I'm going to treat you better than before you left. And some would be like, that's not the way to handle it. We need, uh, we need this and we need that. And sometimes I can't stand the way Christians handle that kind of thing, but, but there's a reason why. Right. Okay. Verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again and was lost and he found and they began to be merry. Amen. Awesome. That's an awesome story, right? Are, are we glad that, that's, that, that that is there because it gives us the character of God that we can be forgiven and that we should always... We should always, no matter how bad of a pigsty we find ourselves in, we should always get up and run to God, not run from God. And especially kids raised in Christian homes, let me just say this, make sure they know that no matter how bad the pigsty is, don't tell them to run from God, tell them to run to God. All right. Sometimes kids raised in a Christian home that's very moral, they feel like if they get into a bad enough pigsty, the last thing they can do is come back home or go back to church. Let them know that no, no matter how bad the pigsty is, the door is open. Don't let them think, no, no, no. That's, that's, just, that's just ungodly and we could have a long discussion here. But there's someone else in the story. Who's the other person in the story? The elder son. Is he as excited as everyone else is in this story? The elder son was in the field and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. What? They danced? Shh. 
dancing is bad. Okay. All right. You cannot dance. Okay. Trust me, but back in the 80s when certain small Texas towns had laws against dancing that the movie Footloose was based off of, yeah. I was the one who was a teenager going, but there's dancing here. Well, it's not the same kind of dancing. Okay. So don't dance. It's against the law. Okay. Whatever. All right. Now that movie, just so that we know, Footloose is the worst movie in the history of all mankind because it's the most illogical thing in the world. The whole, all the arguments made for dancing that the pastor uses to condemn dancing, by the end of the movie, they all prove <laughs> that the pastor is right. So that was the dumbest movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, like someone needed to take a logic class um, to, before they made that movie. How people saw that and didn't see the logical, philosophical problems in it demonstrates people shouldn't watch movies. But that's a whole different argument. All right. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him, and he answered and said to his father, Lo, these, these many years I do serve thee, neither transgress, and at any time um, at, at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, as thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. um, It was meet that we should uh, make merry and be glad for thy brother, which uh, was dead, is alive again, and was lost and is found. Now that is immediately going after whom? The the self-righteous brother, but he's going after the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and it is also setting up what? Who's getting ready to start entering into this whole new thing called Christianity? Gentiles are going to come pouring in and the Jews are going to be like unclean dogs. And he wants them to realize whether you're in the pigsty or whether you're in the, is sitting next to your father at home not doing anything near a pigsty, you both can be sinners. And Paul wants us to understand you're without excuse because you may sit back thinking you're better than the person in the pigsty, but you're just as guilty as the person in the pigsty because you're a sinner, maybe internally, they're a sinner externally, but we're all sinners. And when you look at Romans chapter 2, doesn't it make all the arguments about homosexuality and Romans 1 that everyone argues about seem pretty foolish? Because, in fact, all the ones who say, see, homosexuals, they're done, they're finished, they're done. Look at Romans 1, look at Romans 1. Yeah, oh man, you're inexcusable because you are guilty too. I'm not guilty of homosexuality, but you're guilty of being a sinner. This is setting up the idea that what? I want to make this very clear. He's setting up an idea that whose judgment is flawed? Ours, judgment. Your judgment. So we're going to have to rely on God's judgment. The Jews can't do it. The Gentiles can't because the Jews and Gentiles are both sinners. So we'll end with, uh, well, we'll, I'll try, I, I, I got to try to summarize this. I'll summarize it. Here's the thing I want you to take from this. We're all sinners. 
Self-righteousness needs to be acknowledged and fixed. Right? And that our judgment is flawed. Okay? We're all sinners. We, need to, we have to struggle with our own self-righteousness. I'm telling you, everyone in this room struggles with self-righteousness. I guarantee you do. There's, there's some sins you think are just horrible, and there's other sins you're not too concerned about. Because your, your judgment is all wrong. Your ability to judge is all wrong. We have to realize our flawed judgment. Our sin impacts our ability to judge. Which again proves total. Total depravity affects every part of our being. Our mind, our thinking, our judging, our will is all impacted by total depravity. All right, we'll have to stop right there. Hopefully that's at least a good start to Romans 2. We made it really far, didn't we? All 16 verses in one sermon. We didn't even really finish one. Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, very, very important passage. There is practical things here to be talked about all week. I pray everyone here would be thinking about it, meditating on it, and that it would lead to hopefully some important revelations about ourselves and about uh, some very important concepts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said... The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.